Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 84, Pope John the Fifth. Oh, crap. I should have warned you. you I'm sorry. I completely I got the wrong even... book in front of me. I cannot use I didn't the devil even... book for <laughs> the popes. I gotta get the other book. I didn't even really clue in because I had already sort of mentally prepared for the next one. (laughs) All right, I got it. I got it. I got it. It's on a shelf near my desk, so it's not like it's hard to go get. It just wasn't the one I had open. I have my D20. It's all ready to go. Okay, so I need you to do the D20s for me. So you will have a five and a four. We've got black fish. <laughs> okay, well, maybe he has some feelings about dolphins. Orca whales, you mean? Is it orcas? Isn't blackfish about the dolphin fishing? No, it's orcas. Oh, see, I've never seen it, but I, I know it exists and it's about terrible things happening to ocean animals, which is why I don't watch it, because don't need that heartbreakingness. At least I'm pretty sure it's orcas. Like, I've never seen it either. Now you've got me questioning. <laughs> I thought it was about dolphins. <laughs> I'm googling. Google. Uh, no, it's, it is, it is about orcas. You were correct, so. Alright, thank god. I was like, why is a dolphin black? I, you know, okay, See, I didn't even, again, put that together because I just assumed it was kind of, like, code name for bad Like the the black market or something? Yeah, like, you know, because it, it was an undercover, you know, sort of investigation as far as I understand. Code name Blackfish. Well, now this is a Pope code name Blackfish. He may have feelings about dolphins. He may have feelings about orcas. He may just love the ocean. Let's let's find out, shall we? First off, Pope John, Pope Blackfish, was born in Antioch around 635, and his father was called Syriac. That is, Syriac with a C, not with an S, but it may imply the same thing because, you know, he's from Antioch. He's not super Syriac. That was dumb, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was your first, like, straight-up mom joke. (laughs) So, the Liber Pontificalis calls him an energetic man, knowledgeable, and in every way temperate. These were the qualities that marked him out when he came to Rome and became a deacon, and when he was also made a cardinal deacon in 680, just like many of the others we've mentioned recently. But this is not all we have on John's early life. Having come from the East, John had specific qualities that made him perfect for a special job. Specifically, his command of Greek, which is the most prominent language in the East, and his knowledgeable and temperate personality made him the perfect candidate to represent the Pope's anti-monothelite arguments at the Sixth Ecumenical Council the Third Council of Constantinople. This John was one of those most eloquent and compelling representatives 
that were chosen in the Easter of 680 to go to Constantinople and be at the council and present their arguments. And as we know, the papal legates and the Western representatives of the Diothelite Orthodoxy were successful in achieving a strong condemnation of monothelitism, and John returned home to Rome in July of 682, bringing the canons of the council back to Pope Leo II for confirmation. I quote from the Liber Pontificalis, When it ended, the clement emperor let him depart thence. He came home bringing great joy to the church. The acts of the Holy Sixth Synod itself, the clement prince's edict confirming the synod, and other imperial mandates. No doubt, being one of the legates that helped bring an end to monothelitism made John a rising star and an influential member of the clergy. So when Pope Benedict II died in May of 685, John was elevated to succeed him. And this time, not just by the clergy, but as Andrew J. Economou suggests, by the, quote, general population of Rome. So this is a very, very popular man at this point. And remember what we talked about last week, that the Roman clergy no longer needed to wait for imperial confirmation before consecrating a pope? John becomes the first pope to be consecrated under this protocol, so he was able to be elected and consecrated right away on July 23rd. No more taxes or something. No more taxes, no more waiting for the letters, no more sede vacantes. He was also consecrated by the same bishops who consecrated Pope Leo II, the bishops of Ostia, Portus, and Velitre, which means that it was probably still placentious. But just because the Pope was consecrated without imperial confirmation doesn't mean that he was going to let the warmth between the emperor and the Pope cool off, because things are really, really good right now. They've been going in the right direction, and John wants to see those relations continue to improve. And through some ongoing negotiations with Emperor Constantine, he was able to score some incredible relief for Rome and the church. So it's great that you mention no more taxes, because this now goes a step further. First, the emperor agreed to reduce the rate of tax that the papacy was currently paying for patrimonial holdings, which again are lands donated to the church by the wealthy, particularly in Sicily and Calabria. Then, the emperor entirely abolished a grain tax, which had been implemented in Rome for ages, but had fallen mostly on the church to pay, considering that it was prohibitively high for most people. And so now, with the tax abolish, both the city and the church are less burdened and feeling more charitable than ever towards the emperor. This is all really, really great for their relationship. And even when Emperor Constantine died and was succeeded by his son, Justinian II, relationships remain steady. The new emperor even sent the Pope a letter confirming his own adherence to the canons laid out by the Third Council of Constantinople, reassuring him that there would be no backslide in the East and that the integrity of the original canons would be protected. This letter will not be received by Pope John, rather, to his successor, but it does mean that, again, things are pretty good for the moment in the secular sphere. In fact, for the moment, things were pretty good all over. The only real problem that pops up in John's papacy has to do with Sardinia and the presumptuousness of some bishops. 
How dare. They are so presumptuous and he's not having any of it. So this mostly had to do with the Archbishop of Cagliari, which, by the way, I have said in this podcast before and have probably pronounced incorrectly. It's the one that looks like Cagliari, but apparently it's Cagliari, so... Just pointing that out now, pointing out my own flubs in past episodes. (laughs) That is not at all, by the way, like following any sort of traditional Italian pronunciations of anything, but it's Cagliari, so we're going with it. Archbishop of Cagliari is Sitinatus, and he had consecrated a new bishop called Libisonis to the See of Turis. Now, this is not something he had in his authority to do. The bishop was not a metropolitan bishop. He didn't have any actual permission from the pope to conduct any consecrations. And this new bishop should have come directly to Rome for consecration when he was elected. So again, how dare. Blackfish not happy. So John wrote to the archbishop to invalidate the plans for consecration and to set the record straight about which privileges the bishop did and did not have. Now, fortunately for the bishop-elect, Libisonis, however, he would be confirmed by the pope when it came time for a proper consecration. So he does go to Rome, he does get consecrated, and it all works out in the end for him. Now, unfortunately, through all of this, John had started to show signs of being ill, which gradually worsened and worsened until he was conducting the majority of his papal duties while bedridden. The Liber Pontificalis tells us, This holy man was weakened by long-term illness so that he could hardly even complete the ordinations of sacerdotes. And although we don't know what this illness was... It ensured that John wasn't going to have a long papacy, because then he dies on August 2nd of 686. Twelve minutes into the episode. I know, right? He's already gone. So, unfortunately, sick man just up and dies. So, John was buried at the atrium of old St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed... But for once, and it's weird to say this with any sort of positivity, it wasn't destroyed during the renovations for New St. Peter's, it was destroyed for another reason, so it's worth noting. Mm, They gotta stop breaking this stuff. Well, this one, and I mean, that's why maybe this one's better, because it wasn't just broken out of, like, renovations, which is always so frustrating. His tomb was destroyed in the 9th century in the Saracen Raid of 846 when the Muslim forces showed up at the gates of Rome and ended up plundering and destroying many of the city's churches, including St. Paul's Outside the Walls and parts of St. Peter's Basilica. We're going to cover this raid, of course, in much more detail when it actually happens in our timeline, but for now, all we need to know in this moment is that John's tomb was destroyed in this. So, long before New St. Pete. Which is probably why his epitaph has been preserved by historian Renzo Montini and ends up in Wendy J. Reardon's book, because it wasn't just the Reno one, because all of those are lost. His epitaph says, This tomb covers John the seer. May time add to the great things he began, if there is room. To the end, he was a clever and faithful servant. He was famous and rightly was the first ranking. Sent to the empire in his bishop's stead, 
he stood out by his actions, for the synod and the book of the pontiff recalls him. Provident, polite, firm, and a true priest, he managed nothing blindly, but handled everything with very great authority. That is a nice epitaph. I like that it one. It is a very good one. It's not overly flowery, but it was kind. Mm-hmm. And it feels very personal. There is also a second epitaph that is credited to John by historian Petrus Malleus, but other historians have determined that that more likely belongs to a different pope, so we're not including it since neither man is explicitly named in the epitaph. We're going to save it for later. And just a teaser for next time. When John died, things were not all well and settled for the clergy of Rome, and there was some conflict brewing. But that's for next time. And now it's time to rate Pope Blackfish. Ah, already. Papatum infalium. Sardinia. He keeps the archbishop in line and does not allow him to overstep his authority and consecrate bishops that he shouldn't. That is all we have. Okay. I can give him maybe like a two for that, if that. I, I'm all, I can give him no more than a one for that, especially since we gave Benedict a total of five last time for no longer needing imperial confirmation for the Pope. So I'm going to give him one. You can give him a two. He will get a three in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. He did not have much time out of his sickbed to do anything scandalous. So that's going to be a zero. Being sick in bed. Being sick in bed is not a scandal. Unless, you know, you're the leader of a, of a very contentious country and no one knows where you are. <laughs> That's fair. Seculari impactum. He gained further financial relief from the emperor, so he got rid of those taxes. He got a confirmation of the council canons under the new emperor. Good relationship. And he had that really, really oppressive grain tax abolished for Rome. So that one is pretty good for secular impact. You know, I'm probably going to maybe give him, like, a two. I don't know. I'm feeling two. You're feeling the twos with this one? I'm going to give him a five, because good relationships with the Empire. He didn't get hair. It took me just half a second too long to be like, what? <laughs> but yeah, no, he didn't get hair. There was no symbolic adoption. But I'm, I'm going to give him that five, so with your two, he will get a seven in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Let's look at this man's face. It's a face. What's he doing? He's looking sad. There's lots of sad man lately. I don't know if he's sad or just real sleepy. <laughs> I mean, he could be really sleepy. This could be him the second after he rubbed his eyes. He's a sick old man in bed. He's like, why are you painting my portrait right now? This is a bad idea. <laughs> It looks like someone tried to brush his hair, but it's definitely, like, sickbed hair. It, it's definitely got that flop about it. And there is no bunny poof. No, he doesn't get one of those. We are not at the end of bunny poofs, though. I know someone had sent us a message about being really sad about the end of bunny poofs. <laughs> Don't worry, they're coming back. <laughs> but, but Pope Blackfish does not have one, so... I have never seen an actual bald man with a bunny poof. <laughs> well, I, and I, I kind of hope never to, because it is just the weirdest, it is the weirdest of choices. And I feel like if you make that choice in 2020, people are going to make fun of you. 
Would you have to shave around it? Does your widow's peak do that where it meets in the middle, but you still have like a thatch of hair? I don't, I have never seen a bald man with that. I mean, I can't say that I understand male pattern baldness all that much. So if if there are men listening who want to to weigh in on this, please show do. us your bunny poofs. <laughs> Hashtag show us your bunny poof. Ah, <laughs> uh, at least one person is going to send us a bunny poof, and I am going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think this bunny poof less man? who either is very sad, very sick, or very tired, or all of the above, what is it worth? I'll give him like a four. He needs to go back to bed. He does. I figured you were going to give him a two because you've been given twos all the way through. I'm going to give him a two. So he'll get a six. I feel like he put some effort or someone put some effort into me trying to make this man presentable and they should be commended. That that's fair. That's fair. He gets a nice solid one point five. So that's okay. Tempus Pontificus, July twenty third, six eighty five to August sixth, six eighty six, which is one year. Surprisingly, seems like it would be less, but he gets one year and a score of zero point two five. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. No. Not a saint. Not a saint? Nope. Didn't didn't get around to, to doing too much, so. All right. And that brings us to his total score, which is an 11.75, which, oh boy, I'm looking. Did we do Benedict II dirty? Because he only scored a quarter of a point more than this. Well, to be fair, this man did a lot. He tried to do stuff while being ill so like give him a break it's true it's just it's surprising to me when you see those scores so close together but that is how it has shaken out so now the question with the inevitable answer is is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough is pope blackfish doing enough in his sickbed to make an impact for a papal bowl no don't get him out of bed for this just have him go back to sleep Go back to sleep, Pope Blackfish. We're all right with that. Well, that brings us to the very quick ending of our episode this week, but we have some thank yous to make. So first, we have a patron to absolve of their temporal punishments. So thank you to Sarah Dawson. Ego te absolvo. And then we also need to make a thank you to the Roman History and Byzantine group, who have been recommending us quite a lot lately especially with our council episodes. Uh, we need to thank the Presidencies podcast and the Age of Victoria podcast for always saying such nice things about us. Thank you so much. And also thank you to Cara DiDemazio, who has definitely been doing the same thing and definitely getting the word out about us. So thank you, Cara. And on that note, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.